Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Very cool. Welcome to Tech Tales. I'm Corbin Davenport. And I'm Cody Toombs. And today we're back talking about the Voyager probes. We're back in space, Cody. We are. It There's still a lot of nothingness out here. There's still, yes, there's still a lot of journey to go. In the last episode, we talked about Voyager 1 and 2 reaching Jupiter and Saturn, where they discovered a lot of cool things and also had some mildly funny mechanical breakdowns. And I don't think they considered them mildly funny. No, no, it's funny in retrospect, but I'm yeah. sure at the time they were all like ripping their hair out at NASA. But we got some cool pictures of Jupiter and Saturn. We got some interesting data from those two planets. And when we left off, Voyager 1 already completed its its mission. It wasn't going to go past any more planets on its flyby. It was like it was either curving above or below the um like the solar system disk. So it wasn't going to go by any more planets, but but Voyager 2 keeps on trucking. So NASA requested funds to extend the Voyager program so Voyager 2 could visit Uranus and Neptune. So they're still working, but like all this stuff still requires upkeep, right? You have to pay scientists to look through the data and you have to basically lease time on this network of radar dishes across the Earth to receive and send signals. So even though there's, they're still going, you don't have to build a new probe. It, it still needs money, so you have to ask for money. There were ongoing proposals to launch a new mission to Jupiter and Uranus in 1979, but this is when NASA's budget was still shrinking from the Apollo days. Most of their money at this point was going into like the space shuttles. Perhaps unsurprisingly, keeping Voyager 2 running was much cheaper than launching a brand new probe. Extending Voyager 2's life was estimated at costing around $100 million spread across five years, which is a pretty good deal. Also, when you're when you're trying to convince Congress, particularly though almost anybody who's got money, it's almost always easier to tell them, don't worry, it'll only cost a little bit more. And it's so much it's so much easier than starting something new. Nobody ever wants to pay for some brand new project everyone is always keen though on spending on the thing that's already working yeah and and voyager one and two had been designed to potentially keep going for years the, their main mission was just jupiter and saturn but everyone working on this hoped that voyager two because it was on a path that would allow it to go past more planets it could it could continue observations for even longer like we talked about in the first episode that the power sources for these two probes, which were um, like nuclear power cells, they were designed to keep working for decades in, in case they were able to get funds to keep going. So in November of 1980, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory received approval to continue the Voyager program. So now they've got the money, but they have another issue. At this point, Voyager 2 is really far from the Earth. Right, like all these planets are really far from each other, especially once you get to the outer solar system. NASA and JPL had to partially re-engineer Voyager 2 to prepare it for flying by Uranus and Neptune. Part of that $7 million that was previously allocated to the canceled spacecraft that they were going to you know, replace Voyager 2 with 
went into new transmitting technology and compression technology for Voyager 2. You know, as Voyager 2 is getting farther from the Earth, the bandwidth of its data stream shrinks. It can't send as much data as quickly. So they have to come up with some way to like compress images and other data so it can get to Earth without it taking several months. Before this point, Voyager images were sent uncompressed, about 800 pixels each and 8 bits per pixel. But because most of that image data is dark space or like low contrast cloud features, they made this new compression algorithm that only counted the differences between adjacent pixel values instead of the full 8-bit values. So like this is just how general image compression works, right? When you have like a lossy image, you don't have like the full data for each pixel. You can say like, oh, this one is just a little bit different than the one next to it. Yeah, and they're already doing a pretty inefficient algorithm if they're basically just doing... It, this is almost like line skipping, but not exactly. Right. They developed this new algorithm, which reduces the typical image size by 60% without a significant loss in information. So that's good. And again, like that's that's pretty simple image compression. But at this point, they're sending a firmware update basically to a spacecraft on the other side of the solar system. Mm-hmm. And it, almost awkwardly, they're trying to send something that probably is bigger than the images that they're receiving. So they're, yeah. and they're doing, they're doing a firmware update to something that they, if, if anything goes wrong, you can't really fix it. Like this is as remote and uh, sort of doing it live as you get. Right. So finally... On January 24th of 1986, Voyager 2 makes its closest approach to Uranus. And this is the first time any spacecraft had been there. And <laughs> in, in my notes, I have like, this is the first time any spacecraft had seen Uranus up close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the inevitable, like, in your notes, you have to say the words, don't giggle. <laughs> yeah. I I mean it's it's just funny. It's it that'll never not be funny. Yeah. No. They 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 completely screwed up when they named that planet. <laughs> yeah. Stupid <laughs> stupid Roman gods. I think they're Roman gods. Um uh, yeah, or maybe, probably. maybe maybe Greek, one of those. Yeah, but I I think a lot of astronomy goes Roman for some reason. Reference to the Greek god of the sky. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, to be fair, all the Roman gods were the Greek gods. They just co-opted <laughs> them. It was the it was the DLC of the Greek gods. Oh God. They added they added more to the roster. Yeah, pretty much. So Voyager 2's images help scientists discover eleven new moons. Voyager 2 also discovers that Uranus has a tilted magnetic field, so it's poles like it's north and south poles are actually closer to the equator so very weird place uh, we, we still don't really know why why that happened i still want to know one of these days i'm gonna have to look this up how do they decide here's here's the equator here are the poles on a sphere yeah well it's like i i, I think specifically here they're talking about like the magnetic poles i think so they have like you know 
magnetic instruments on board. Um, they can tell where the poles are, but um, yeah, it's it's definitely more more opaque, especially when you look at photos of Uranus. It's it's completely featureless. Like it doesn't even have the cool cloud patterns you see on Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune. It's just yeah, like a, a hazy ball. There's no features at all. Exactly. I I mean I get that the uh, orientation of the rotation. I'm sure that's to some extent what decides this. But yeah, it just something seems off about making those declarations. But anyway, that is that does kind of get into like a meta argument about like what kind of is a planet, right? Because these are the outer planets, the gas planets are so different than Earth and Venus and Mars. Where mm-hmm. they're 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 like a little bit closer to a star, but they're still very far from the the mass that would be required to to start a star, basically. So they they're very weird, uh, which is why they're they're fun to read about because they're all very different and they they don't really make any sense. Voyager two also discovers Uranus's very dark rings. We didn't know there were rings around that planet, so that's that's interesting. And it records temperatures as low as minus 353 degrees Fahrenheit or 59 Kelvin. So very cold out there. That makes Uranus the coldest planet in the solar system. And a good reminder, you should put on your jacket, kids, before going to Uranus. Yes, make sure you have some nice fuzzy socks for that trip. And now I will show you some photos from the planet that Voyager took. These will be in the show notes. Most of these photos are actually of the moons. Wow, that third image, that looks, that moon just looks absolutely wrecked. Oh yeah, that's, that's Miranda. Yeah, that got, that, that, that got decked at some point. I want to say like it had a brushing collision with something else that was huge. Hmm. It just looks like it actually has straight up scrape marks where something just massive just barely skidded across it. Scientists still don't really know like how exactly it formed, like how it got to look like that. But they do know that it has uh, the highest cliff in the solar system Hmm. because of these like gaps at the surface. Basically, there's one cliff that's 20 kilometers high. Wow. Yeah, pretty wild stuff. Again, space is cool. Everyone should read more space stuff. It's really cool. So that was in 1986. In August of 1987, NASA completes the expansion of its deep space network on Earth with new large radio dishes at all three communication centers. So this is the worldwide network of radar dishes that NASA uses to this day to keep in contact with probes and and other things that are in the solar system because you know the the earth is spinning right so you need communication hubs at like different points around the world so there's not a gap yeah the the same pointed earth isn't always facing where the satellite is right so at this point the three communication centers are in Goldstone California Madrid Spain and Canberra Australia the new dishes are 70 meters wide, which were an upgrade from the older 64-meter dishes. These upgrades improve NASA's ability to 
keep communicating with the Voyager probes, which, you know, as I mentioned before, they're sending weaker and weaker radio signals as they get further away. NASA also worked with the Very Large Array radio telescope in New Mexico to add low noise receivers on all its antennas, which further improved the data transmission rates with the Voyager probes. On August 25th of 1989, Voyager 2 makes its last stop at Neptune. Same thing with Uranus, this is the first time any spacecraft had been up close to Neptune. Voyager 2 discovered six new moons around Neptune, and we got the first images of Neptune's rings. Voyager 2 also discovered a counterclockwise rotating storm in Neptune's southern atmosphere, which was later nicknamed the Great Dark Spot, as a reference to Jupiter's Great Red Spot. So here's some Neptune photos. And again, these are also in the show notes if, if anyone wants to look at them, which you should. These are cool pictures. Some of these are like phone wallpaper material for sure. Yeah, gotta hand it to Neptune. It is it is it is possibly one of the most photogenic planets just by virtue of color. It's ex- it's yeah, it's extremely blue. Unlike Uranus, there's actually some cloud details you can see. It's not just a a, a featureless orb. Um there is that that dark spot on the planet, which again, like these photos are so cool because up until this point there weren't really any photos of Neptune. Like the best we were getting was from telescopes on earth that just showed the smallest bit of detail. And then we get really cool up close photos in, in 1989. And that, that fourth photo there is actually of, of Triton. There's like some cool, like a Valley on, on the, uh, the middle of the moon. Yeah. I was looking at, I was looking at the moon and, it has a distinct look that just, you can't, it's inescapable how much it looks like it has to have been water flow. Yeah. This seems like it had to have occurred as a result of a river or something like that. Triton is really cool. This is one of those places in the solar system that scientists would really like to go back because Triton doesn't have a lot of impact craters in in the photos we have, which means that its its surface is relatively young, right? Like at, at at some point in kind of recent history, there had to have been some kind of flow across the surface, right? Whether it's water or you know maybe some tectonic activity, something. So in late nineteen eighty nine engineers shut off the wide-angle and narrow-angle cameras on Voyager 2, hoping to conserve power and memory for other instruments. It was not on a path that would have allowed it to take pictures of Pluto or anything. That's why we had to wait until, I think it was 2013, for the first images from New Horizons. Man, Pluto always getting the raw end of the deal. Yeah. Voyager 2 was done taking pictures of planets, but it was still going. During the main missions of Voyager 1 and 2, the scientist Carl Sagan, which we mentioned in the first episode, was one of the scientists that was putting together the golden record on the two probes that had all the sounds and and, uh, I think Ronald Reagan saying hi. I think that was on there. Hmm. But Carl Sagan was pushing NASA for years to take a picture of the Earth with one of the Voyager probes while it was in deep space. 
Like he thought it was really important to have this picture of the earth from from farther out than than we'd ever taken a picture of the earth. And that's a pretty cool idea. But NASA scientists were were really hesitant to do that just because it would probably blow out Voyager's cameras. Because if if you think about it, if it would turn back to the earth and try to focus on the earth, you'd have the kind of dim earth next to this big glowing ball of the sun and that would <laughs> that would probably mess up the cameras so they they didn't do that but carl sagan he kept at it he kept trying to get nasa to do it after voyager one's mission was done because at that point it didn't matter if the cameras kept working because it, you know it wasn't going to go past any more planets so mm-hmm. it, you know it's it's fine if it breaks but there was still the problem where capturing that image would require six months of data transmission and, you know, like keeping a staff of people around to take in the images and process them. So the the head of NASA at the time, uh, a guy named Richard Truly, said in an interview, quote, I did get a visit from Carl Sagan. We talked about a lot of things, and somewhere in that conversation he mentioned this idea. I thought, heck, with Voyager so far away, if it could turn around and take a picture of different planets, including the Earth, that would be really cool. And so I was a great advocate of it, although I can't take any credit for it. Quote. Hmm. On February 14th of 1990, Voyager 1 captures its final photos, nicknamed the Solar System Family Portrait. (laughs) And it's a series of images that captures Venus, Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune from a distance of 4 billion miles or 6 billion kilometers from the sun, assembled in a mosaic of 60 frames. Mercury was not in the photo because it was too close to the sun to be seen, because again, the sun's really bright and Mercury's really tiny and close. And also Mars and the moon were too small, but we got most of the planets in there. Each frame of the mosaic was 640,000 individual pixels, and the Earth was only 0.12 pixels in one of the photos. <laughs> so it, it basically was it was a dot. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to show you this portrait. There it is. And you see a little bit of the sun, and that's really the only thing you can pick out. In this image is the sun, but they've also zoomed in on the bits where you see Jupiter and the Earth and and so on. You also get a pretty good scale for the solar system in this picture because you have the sun and Earth and Venus are almost in the center of where the sun's supposed to be. And then Jupiter is, it's a little bit outwards. And then it's like several times that distance to Saturn and then several times again to Uranus and Neptune. Part of that is just because like, Voyager 1 is closest to Neptune in terms of of distance. So it's yeah. it's like the parallax thing where, you know, if something's farther away it looks it looks closer. Yeah, and relative positions are obviously also kind of complicated just by virtue of uh orbit time and where they kind of land in the um I guess you could say the disk of our right. orbits. Right. Like every, all these planets have different orbital periods. And the Jet Propulsion Laboratory eventually sets up a display in its headquarters, which was almost entirely black space with a few dots of light for the planets. One of the people who helped process those images at JPL told NPR in an interview, quote, 
One of the guys that took care of that display told me one time that he was forever having to replace that picture because people would come up to look at it and they would always touch the earth. Quote. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that's that's kind of neat. But at the same time, how much of that sucked to just be in that position? Like, man, could you it, stop stop touching the wall, man, please? <laughs> it makes you think like either A, you should probably just put like glass over it or B, because I mean, really, like a little bit of Windex problem solved or B, like just take it to a printer and have them do like 800 copies of that one. Just laminate the one block <laughs> on the yes. wall. That won't look weird at all. There were solutions. Carl Sagan published a book in 1994 called Pale Blue Dot. And some of it is about this picture, but a lot of it is just sort of like what he thinks about science and the, the earth and so on. I'm going to read kind of a long quote from the book. I wanted to include his voice saying this because like the audio recording of this from his audiobook has been used in like some documentaries and stuff. It's, it's a kind of a famous audio recording, but that will get this episode destroyed from YouTube. So I can't do that. So I have to read it. He said, quote, we succeeded in taking that picture from deep space. And if you look at it, you see a dot that's here. That's home. That's us on it. Everyone you ever heard of, Every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, Every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It is up to us. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling, and I might add, a character-building experience. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly and compassionately with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Quote. Nicely said. Yes, it's getting very philosophical there. So after capturing this series of images, NASA turns off Voyager 1's cameras, just like had already been done for Voyager 2. And on February 17th of 1998, 
Voyager 1 past the distance of the Pioneer 10 probe, which officially made it the farthest human-made object from Earth. In December of 2004, Voyager 1 passes the solar system's termination shock, which is basically where the solar wind from the sun slows down and heats up as it encounters interstellar wind. Voyager 2 passes that same barrier in August of 2007, but unlike when Voyager 1 did it, NASA actually got some data from Voyager 2 while that was happening, so that was interesting for them to dig through. This is one of many events that gets called Voyager 1 and 2 leaving the solar system, right? This is kind of like a recurring joke that they keep passing these barriers that like you could you could define as the edge of the solar system so every time it happens you get a new wave of news articles that's like voyager 2 left the solar system and it's like okay this is like the 10th time we've done this now <laughs> because like there's not really like right there, there's no wall separating the solar system from everything else it's just like a gradual shift kind of like there's not a firm line where the earth's atmosphere ends and where outer space begins it's just a gradual transition so there are a lot of milestones in voyager one and two where you could say is is them leaving the solar system um and that that was just one of them the reality is they just keep making the simulation larger <laughs> yeah <laughs> they gotta <laughs> add new chunks to the world oh my god it's like minecraft yeah. As you venture out further, it just keeps growing the the size of the, the planet. Yeah, they get to a new biome. Yep. Yeah. On August 13th of 2012, Voyager 2 becomes NASA's longest operating mission, breaking the record set by Pioneer 6. And as of when we're recording this in May of 2022, Voyager 1 and 2 are still functioning, and they periodically send data back to Earth. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory estimates that both probes have enough electrical power and thruster fuel to keep their current scientific instruments running until around 2025. Um, you know, they don't really know for sure, but over the years, they've they've turned off most of the instruments one by one, right? Like we, I mentioned that like all the cameras were already shut off and stuff because like those don't need to be running. There's there's nothing left to take pictures of. Mm-hmm. A few more spacecraft have visited Jupiter since the Voyager probes, including Ulysses in 1982, uh, the Cassini mission in 2000 past Jupiter on its way to Saturn, New Horizons past Jupiter on its way to Pluto in 2007, and there were others. Only one spacecraft has visited Saturn since Voyager 1 and 2, which was the Cassini mission in 2004. No spacecraft have been back to Uranus or Neptune since Voyager 2. So all the pictures we have of Neptune and its moons and everything around them are still from Voyager 2. And there are some proposals to send new missions to those planets, but nothing's been approved or launched yet. be pretty neat to put some modern cameras on those things. and Yeah, for, for sure. Or, or one of the... Um, like an atmospheric probe that just kind of goes down slowly and we get to learn more about what's inside those planets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're, they're still, they're still running and you know, once they run out of power, they'll just shut off, but they'll keep drifting at the same speed they're at because there, there's nothing in space to slow them down unless they just get whacked by a, a rock or something. 
So, you know, they'll just, they'll keep going. All things considered, that would be like the, the most incredible dart throw if one of those actually collides with anything. Yes. Yes. Space is so empty. It's, it's really unlikely that's going to happen. The, the most likely scenario is just, it keeps going through empty space for thousands of years. That is kind of an interesting thing to think about that maybe the most long lasting or, or, or permanent thing that people ever build is the <laughs> stuff we send into space. Right. Yeah. You know, like, like on earth, you know, we have like an atmosphere that breaks stuff down and, but in space it's, it's the perfect vacuum. It's the perfect storage mechanism almost. So interesting stuff to think about. How, okay. Obviously this is, this is the craziest, most unlikely scenario, but imagine if it gets far enough out there and then the sun's gravity is just, enough to slow down and eventually start pulling it back one one of these days someone hundreds and hundreds of years from now someone's watching space and they're like uh hey guys we see something (laughs) and lo and behold it's it's this random probe that got sent out at the beginning of space exploration and and they're like okay so uh Let's catch this thing and put it up for auction. There is a funny, like, uh, like a movie idea in there where, like, humans in the far future have no record of our time, and they think that aliens showed mm-hmm. up because their probe got here. <laughs> it's it's Voyager. Yeah, I can see that, and and they're gonna they're gonna be poking through all of the things that they collect out of it, and and stumble across this record, and they're gonna hear somebody saying hi. <laughs> they're, they're gonna hear Ronald Reagan. <laughs> They're not going to know that, though. Yeah. Ronald Reagan's an alien, guys. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Very cool. But, uh, yeah, that's that's the Voyagers. Cody, do you have anything to plug? No. At the moment, just follow me on... Well, I'd like to send everyone to follow me on Twitter, but let's be honest. We don't know how things are going to go with that these days. So, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter and Mastodon. That would probably be ideal. Uh, there will be links in the show notes. Oh, great. Now you're you're putting the pressure on me to remember to do that. Uh, yes, homework. Great. It, you already have to remember to do show notes. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's that's true, but they that's just all that stuff's in my Word document already. I just paste that over. 